Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. This is the process. I need to learn how to fall in love with the process because the process just goes on and on and on. I had to learn to change my mindset so that I wasn't goal-oriented. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers. And each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, today I interview author Thomas Sterner. His book, just the thought, emotional freedom through deliberate thinking, teaches us how to use our minds, but not be used by our minds, <laughs> if that makes sense. He's a wellness expert and a mindset coach, and this interview was very much in alignment with what we talk about here on The Truth Prescription, which is being honest, right? Having an honest reflection on what we're thinking and how it impacts us both negatively and also positively, because you remember... Thoughts create action, action creates habits, and habits ultimately create your legacy, right? How will people see you? What will your family or the world say about you when you are no longer here? So anyhow, let's uh, take a listen to the interview and let's learn about accessing freedom through the power of the mind. Let's do it. Good people, welcome back. Another episode of the Truth Prescription Podcast. And today, I have the pleasure of interviewing author, and uh, we'll call him Mindset Maven, <laughs> Tom Sterner, or Thomas Sterner. I can call you Tom, right? Yeah, Absolutely, you. absolutely, please. How you doing, Tom? Welcome. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Excellent, excellent. So let's get right into it. We always start off the show with a, a personal story from my guest describing a truth in his or her life that they were either ignoring or just weren't aware of that once they accepted it, created a breakthrough for them personally or professionally. So tell us what your, what your truth story is. My truth story is that when I was younger, I was very undisciplined. Uh, I didn't finish tasks. I was very creative. So I had a lot of ideas and then I would burn up my initial enthusiasm. And then I was left with only discipline, which I didn't have any of. And so then I would basically peter off of that and look for something else. It was a pattern of behavior. And what I didn't realize, and, and I would say this, you know, from the, the sentence you just said, I was unaware of the fact that I was reacting to behaviors that I had installed into my subconscious. So one of the things that I tell my clients is that I am not my thoughts. Because when I was growing up, I was always told you can't you can't control your emotions, which is completely untrue. Right. But that was that generation. And so I tell my clients, look, I'm not my thoughts. I have thoughts, some of which I create, but most of them are basically programs 
that I have installed into my subconscious or someone else has unintentionally, most of the time unintentionally. And uh, that's, we need our subconscious. That's how it works. It's a million times faster than our conscious mind. And that's the reason why when we, you know, we don't need to learn how to button our shirt twice. Uh, we don't need to learn that we don't put our hand on a hot stove twice, you know, and we, when we do put our hand on a hot stove, we don't have to think about what's involved in pulling it away. It's all taken care of for us. So when I began to realize that, look, I can either be the thinker of my thoughts or I can be thought. And so that was the changing thing for me. And that all started when I was in my late teens, uh, early 20s. And that's when I began to really look for how does this all work? How does our mind work? How does my mind work? What can I control? What can I control? What is the system? And once I began that, that's what really changed my life because everything, discipline, awareness, self-awareness, all of that came out of that moment when I realized that I am not my thoughts. My thoughts happen to me. Some of them I want and some of them, I, many of them I don't want. And so I needed to get outside of that cycle. It's interesting that, that you have this sort of epiphany really at a young age, right? In your teens. I don't know many teenagers that are that self-aware to even think about their thoughts, right? Think about their thoughts. That's, that's funny phrasing. But I can even think about myself when I was a teenager, just so self-absorbed with the thoughts and everything going on in my external environment to really be able to take a step back and say, it sounds like it was a moment or, or, or moments where you realize, wait a minute, these thoughts are sort of coming to me, but not, not necessarily coming from me. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah, I mean, I was a very solitudinal kid. I mean, I had friends, but I wasn't a partier. And, you know, I was a pretty serious person. I was a musician and I was a deep thinker. So because of that, what well, you know, I think that what happened was it was a culmination of the fact that I was not accomplishing what I wanted. And I was very self-aware of that. And I knew that nobody was going to change it for me because it was going to have to come from within. And so I just said, you know, I'm just going to have to get into this and figure it out. And I was by myself, you know, living in an apartment by myself in solitude until I was about 30. So I had a lot, a lot of time by myself to read and think and take walks on the beaches and try stuff out and all that sort of thing. So that was, it was a learning process. But once I realized, look, I don't want this thought. So why am I having it? You know, like, right. I, you know, when I started to see things right. that way and I did a, I did a short thing with uh, some high school kids one time. I was doing a clinic and I told them, look, we're going to we're going to close our eyes for two minutes and I want you to stop thinking. Well, I, I knew they couldn't do it, but they yeah. didn't know they couldn't do it. They're so used to all the input from their cell phones and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So at the end of two minutes, when they came out of it, you know, when the, the bell went off, they're just like, you know, I can't believe it. I was trying to do this. I couldn't do it. And my mind was going here. And my mind was going there. And so then I asked them this question. I said, well, let me ask you this. If you are using your will to tell your mind to stop thinking and it's saying, no, I'm going to do it anyway. Who's really in charge during the day? Because it isn't you. And for them, it was really this awakening because it had never occurred to them that they weren't the one who was thinking. So anyway, that's, you know, that's really, that's how I got to where I am. I mean, obviously you, you grew up in a household with parents and did you have siblings? I had two sisters, one older and one younger. So you had siblings. So you had a whole sort of cultural infrastructure, I'll call it. Did any of them have any of these sort of thoughts or conversations at dinner? That's a great question. My sisters, no, <laughs> not, yeah. not at all. My mother was highly disciplined and quiet. And my father was extremely creative, a uh, very brilliant man. And I would say 
an amazing problem solver. So when you put it to put those two together, you know, my mother's discipline and because I didn't have any brothers, I spent a lot of time with my father and we were really best friends. And so because of that, I learned problem solving thinking. And so I applied that to this. I was like, look, identify the problem and fix it. So what's the problem? The problem is I'm not disciplined. The problem is I'm not in control of my thoughts. Well, then I got to know where my thoughts are coming from if I want to have the opportunity to control. them. So that just kind of all worked together. The reason I ask that question is because, you know, sometimes people feel like, oh, well, if I don't come from a certain type of family or I don't have certain type of influences, then I can't do certain things. And even for me, I remember like at age nine or 10, my mom giving me a book about meditation. Right. So when I tell that story, people are like, oh, because I medit- you know, I've been meditating for 10 plus years now. But I know that a lot of it started with her introducing this concept to me so many years ago. But the point you're making, and I'm glad you're making it, is that you don't necessarily have to come from that environment that supports that kind of thing. As long as you have a sort of inclination or a notion that, hey, maybe everything I've been thinking is not what I'm thinking or, or, or I'm being thought, as you say in the book. I wanted to ask you about the practicing mind was, uh, I guess you originally wrote it in, in, in 2005 and then republished it in 2012. So that was your first book. And now we have your new book, which is It's Just a Thought, right? Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking, which is now coming out all of these years later, nine, 10, 11 years later. Just talk about the difference between the two books and and sort of what almost compare and contrast, because just listening to the titles, they sound similar, but I'm sure they're not. Well, there is a commonality. They're really my own evolution. When I wrote The Practicing Mind, I had spent quite a bit of time studying Eastern thought and quantum physics. Now, when I first started studying quantum physics, I I'd read, you know, 10 pages and I didn't even know what I just read. You know, I didn't understand the (laughs) verbiage or anything like that. I've gotten much better at it, like, um, you know, over the decades. But the practice in mind was about being present moment, because for the most part, people are not present moment. They don't live in the moment. They they are always their mind is always someplace else and they're with it. And one of the things that I, you know, teach through meditation is learning. We're not looking for a quiet mind. We're looking to be aware of what the mind is doing without our permission. Because as I said earlier, we can't change it if we're not aware of it. And we have to be the observer of it because there's two places you can be. One is you can be the observer of your thoughts or you can be in the thought. So something happens and then the thought creates this emotional content and then you're just in the emotion. If that emotion creates a behavior, then you're in the behavior and you're not really making any choices. You're just executing and um, you know behavior that has been installed. So that was really in the beginning, it was learning to be really aware because that's where I was personally, was the journey of being aware of my thoughts and making disciplining my mind to be in the present moment. Everything was about being in the present moment. One of the things that was the the catalyst for that was the job that I had, because when I was at the University of Delaware, I was getting a degree in turf and horticulture, which I got, which was for like a groundskeeper, like on a, on a golf course. But in those days, the chemicals they were using were giving you two-headed kids. And I just decided oh. I was, you know, wasn't going to, you know, I mean, they were pretty upfront about it. It was very, wow. a lot of cancers and stuff like that, birth sure. defects. So I, after I got the degree, I decided this isn't for me. I had been a musician all of my life. I was very mechanical because my father was. And he he said, well, why don't you go into piano technology? He said, you know, you like the piano, you're mechanical, you can work on it. So I, I ended up going into piano. I started a piano technology business when I was 19. And by the time I was 23, 
I had every credential in the country that was available. I was doing high-level concert work. But the reason I mention that is because piano work is it's very difficult to relay to people how monotonous it is. Because in a piano, you have 88, whatever you're doing, it's, it's at least 88 times because you got 88 notes. And if you look at a piano keyboard, if you're going to adjust that keyboard, and it has to be absolutely perfect because these concert-level pianists, they push the instrument to the threshold. And when you watch them, when they play fast, everything has to reset, refire so, so quickly. There's like 5,000 parts in a key, a grand keyboard, 34 adjustments. Each adjustment, you're talking about micro adjustments, and they're all inter interleave with each other. So you change this one at the beginning of the train, and you got to go to the caboose and make sure that that didn't impact that back there. So it's very detail-oriented, very disciplined, and extremely boring and monotonous because you got to do it so many times. And it's solitudinal. You're always by yourself all day long in a concert hall. Nobody's around. There's a spotlight on you and the rest of the theater is dark. And you're doing this all day long. And, and you have a lot of stress on you to, um, to make the instrument perform. Because if it doesn't, you're the guy they're going to come back to. So doing that, it put me in this environment that was a, just an amazing incubator for being alone with my thoughts, noticing what my mind was doing, and getting myself in a place where I could, I just said like, look, this is the process. I need to learn how to fall in love with the process because the process just goes on and on and on. You, know, you finish this piano, you just go to the next one. Like, so I had to learn to change my mindset so that I wasn't goal oriented. I had to know what the goal was. And that was to make the piano an invisible instrument to the player. But at the same time, I had to enjoy the process of, of just working on the instrument. So that was a really good test for me. And that's where the practicing mind came from. Then I, I wrote Fully Engaged, which to me was like another seven chapters of the practicing mind. And But this, it's just a thought, you know, what are we, 20 years, almost 20 years away from that. And the research for this has been several years because the, some of the research wasn't available when I wrote The Practicing Mind. And this is more the interaction of the conscious mind, how the subconscious mind works and how heart math, you know, how the heart, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the heart, what we're realizing now is that neurocardiologists discovered, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago that the heart it has a brain. They call it the heart brain. And that brain does much more thinking than our brain does. And, you know, the brain is dependent on the heart for information, uh, you know, in terms of running the body, but the heart is the thinker. And that just seems so weird to us because we've always imagined the heart is this, you know, muscle that just pumps blood, but it generates an electrical field outside of us. And that electrical field has data in it. And that data is information, just like, you know, our, one, with our, smartphone, it puts out a, an electromagnetic wave that has information. It carries the information, your text, your phone call, your pictures or whatever you're doing. And the heart does the same thing. It's putting information out about you, what your concept of yourself is. How do you feel about the person that's standing right next to you? All this is embedded in this electrical field that's going on inside of you. But our neurosystem is designed to receive that information and decode it. And this is what's so fascinating about this, because when we're standing next to people and around people, we are, there's a conversation that's going on. It's just invisible. And that's where there can be a real disconnect. The disconnect can be, you can say whatever you want with your, your mouth. That's why we can lie. <laughs> you know? But your heart doesn't lie, you know? So, so the, what's coming out of somebody's mouth when they're talking to you and what's coming out of their heart 
your heart's reading that information, but your ears are hearing this information, and there can be a real miscommunication there. So my point is, is that was all the research that I became so fascinated in. And the reason the book is called, you know, um, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking is for people to realize, look, in the practicing mind, we learned how to recognize who we are, what I'll call our true self, the observer, and what part of us isn't, which is just automated responses, how to always get back in the present moment. But then after you have that, what do you do with it? You know, where, where do you aim the skill? And that was when I said, you know, most of the time we're not deliberate thinkers. About 95% of the time is what neuroscience says is we're just running programs from stimulus that are happening around us. And so our thinking is not deliberate. And so we are not in control of it. And so that's where the freedom comes from. You know, you don't want to surrender who you are to anyone or any circumstance, but we do all the time. Somebody comes in and says something to you. As a quick story I just used um, as an example, I had an executive one time and we're having this conversation and he said, um, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't buy into this. He said, I think I think my thoughts. I am the thinker of my thoughts and I'm in control. And I just looked at him. I said, did I tell you to talk? You need to shut up and sit there until I tell you to talk. And as soon as I did that, he went, I said, you see, you didn't think to do that. I said, I just manipulated you because I knew if I talked to you that way, there would be a file in your subconscious that had learned that when someone talks to me this way, this because it's watching your feelings. How does it when you get this feeling, the subconscious goes, there's the feeling. Go get file 302 AB, you know, and run it. And then it ran it. And then you reacted. I said, but there was no you in any of that. That was just that thing playing and you in it. And it was like an epiphany for him. You know, he said, man, thanks for the awakening. He said, I just didn't realize, you know that you're right. He said, I was did not participate in any of that. I just basically reacted. And I said, you know, that's the difference, but that's why we call them first responders. <laughs> we don't call them first <laughs> reactors. I said, you know, response is got will and decision-making in it. It's pre-thought, you know, what are you going to do if this happens? You know, a reaction is just that. It's just a reaction where somebody pokes the bear and, you know, then you, you know, you have a reaction to it. I said, that's what I mean when I say we don't want to give up our freedom to anybody or any situation. We don't want somebody to be able to come into a room and say something to us, and then we just surrender ourselves to them. And now they're in control of everything we think and do, what we're going to feel, all that. And that's, to me, is what, that's not freedom. <laughs> you know, so that's really what I was was trying to accomplish with this last book. A lot of important things you said there. Most people that are listening don't know this, but the piano is a stringed instrument, right? So when he was right. talking about the tuning and, you know, most pianos have 88 keys. And so the way a piano works, you hit the key, there's a, a hammer, if you will, on the, on the other side, on the inside that touches that note that creates the sound, right? I played viola for 10 years. So, and wow, okay. played orchestras and made some music that has been in commercial. So I, I know about, I know, I, I know music. So my, my point is it's very tedious work, right? And so I think it's a very important point you made about being, process focus versus goal focus because i think when you're goal focused you're not really looking at each individual sort of part you're always sort of looking at the destination instead of the journey right if you if, if, if want well to say i've that. said that that's an, an excellent way of putting it i've said that when you attach yourself to the goal you immediately put yourself at war with the process of getting there <laughs> right. um, you, know, you know so because you're always in this place where you're thinking I'm not going to feel good about this until I'm over there. So I got to go all the way from here to there. And I, you know, I'm dreading it. When you just use that as your focal point for your steering your energy, 
You know, where are you going to, what are you aiming for is, is to accomplish this. And then you let go of that and you become immersed in the process of achieving the goals instead of in the moment you have the goal, your life changes. It absolutely changes because you're always where you want to be. And so you stop being impatient and you stop feeling like you this resistance and you stop feeling like you're struggling. Yeah, resistance and resentment. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to say is there's a book. Uh, it's it's a classic. I'm sure you know it. Secret Told, The Power of Now. Oh, yes, I've read it. Yes. I, I remember when I read this book, many people have read it. The part that you, what you're talking about in this book and also in The Practicing Mind really what was what I felt was missing because he talked a lot of theoretical about being in the present moment and blah, 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 blah. But there was no, what are the actionable steps to sort of get there, to be able to be in the present moment and be aware and know, you know, basically be able to like have full agency of your thoughts and your, and your body on a second by second basis. So talk a little bit more about the heart and mind connection. You have a chapter on it in the book, but to your point, you mentioned it earlier, people don't really realize that there is that connection and that the the heart itself has a brain. Right. And the brain is, you know, from what I've read, um, and I'm I'm not an expert on it, I'm very fascinated with it. I do have the heart math technology, which I use, you know, in order to uh, reset my coherence, you know, during the day. Well, you have, you have the machine. I have, yeah, you can buy them. Yeah. It's a thing. It, it attaches to your earlobe and then it runs off of an app in your iPad or your phone or whatever. And um, that's hard. Oh, yeah. It's a what? Yes. A- it, yeah. And what that does is I'll tell you how it works. When you have the feelings, what we would call heart centered feelings, which would be gratitude, appreciation, love, all of those things, the heart and the brain fall into a coherence with each other. And the coherence means they become in sync. And then the whole your whole neurosystem becomes in sync. So, so the way that you accomplish that is you sit and you close your eyes, a couple of cleansing breaths, and you focus on the heart, which is your basically the whole nerve center here. You focus on that to energize it um, and to focus. Your brain is basically focusing its attention on that. And then you begin to think thoughts of gratitude now, you know, and and thoughts of appreciation. How do you do that? Well, you might think about someone that you're in love with or someone uh, in your life that you really appreciate or a circumstance. You know, I have this wonderful home and it's warm and there are people out there that are freezing. You think about those things. And what that does is the heart reacts to it and it begins to speak to the body, sends out the signals and everything. Now, this software, this software plots this. And it watches because what it's really looking at is when the heart and the brain are in coherence, if you say like my heart beats 80 beats a minute, mm-hmm. well, in a normal person, those 80 beats are not equally spaced. Sure. They're just kind of like, then there might be, you know, they're kind of all over, but it turns out to be 80 beats a minute. When you're, when you're in coherence, they're almost like a metronome, you know? So what happens, this thing, this off of your ear, it plugs onto your earlobe. And then, like I said, it can go into an iPad or your smartphone and they have an app that goes with it. And the app is decoding this information. And let's say you can set it for a sensitivity. Like, you know, when you start out, you can make it relatively not not real sensitive. And then it can, as you progress in your ability to get yourself into coherence, you can make it harder, you know, as, it, as your skill level goes up. And then at the end, like, let's just say you do this for five minutes. You don't have to do it real long. It shows you the whole five minutes. It shows you where your coherence was, when you went into coherence, when you went out of coherence, how long you were in coherence, and how deeply you were in coherence. There's all this data that it shows you. And then it keeps 
basically keeps a score like um, your data as you go on to show you how you're progressing. So it's fascinating technology. And um, the value of it is, is that you can teach yourself. You can you can do this like in, in just a few minutes using this. Once you, you don't have to have the thing on your ear all the time. You just learn how to go into coherence and you can use that. You can do it with your eyes open. You know, when you're in a room full of people and you're starting to feel out of coherence, they don't have to know you're doing it. You know, you can close your eyes and go into it. You can do it in the in the uh, checkout line at the grocery store That's when it's just right. really long. You know, anywhere you can use this and it recenters you. And what happens is, is when you're in coherence, all these things happen. The, your critical thinking goes up. Your clarity goes up. Your big picture thinking goes up, expands. Your peripheral vision expands. There's all these things that happen when the heart brain are in coherence. It's really about mental performance and emotional peace and all sorts of stuff. So it's a fascinating new technology. And I think that, you know, I wanted to make one point about what you said earlier is that, you know, talking about being in the present moment, you know, people go, well, how do I get in the present moment? And I, I said, well, the first thing you have to do is learn to recognize when you're not. They sit down and that is what the meditation, that's really what meditation does. Meditation teaches you to be outside of your thoughts. So when your mind takes off, just like in a meditation, your mind takes off. If you're either in that wherever it goes or you're noticing that it's going there and then you're pulling it back. And so that's how you re when you re begin to recognize I'm not in the present moment. I'm thinking about some meeting I got later this day or somebody, somebody said to me yesterday or, you know, whatever. That's the value of some sort of a meditation program. Yeah, I, I got to a point in my meditation, maybe six or seven years in where I could literally sense like, oh, wow there's a program moving my body. I'm not really moving my body right now, right? And so you you sort of just notice when you're sort of fully immersed and fully present mentally, uh, I, even, you know, my vision, like, am I really looking at the room or am I just sort of scanning the room? You know, it, it, there's just a, a difference. To your point, your peripheral vision widens. You sort of take everything in when you're in this in this coherence. And even a, a normal meditation practice that maybe doesn't even involve connecting to the heart can give you some sense of coherence because you, you learn to sort of be, I just call it like internally compact, where everything is just sort of one, your mind and your emotions, your body. So let's say you have a, a somebody's listening to this, you know, we've kind of traveled a few different places, but they just want to answer the question. They come to you as a client, Tom, how do, how, what are three keys to being able to learn how to think deliberately. Like, I just want to get some nuggets. Um, I didn't read your book yet, but I will, Tom. <laughs> but if I didn't read your book, what is some, some, even if it's one key to just thinking deliberately? Well, the very first thing is I always start with is you have to have some sort of a, what I'll call thought awareness training. If you are in your thoughts, you have no power yeah. and you don't have the, you don't have the privilege of choosing what you're thinking. Nothing can happen if you are in your thoughts. You have got to be the thinker of the thoughts. And the only way you're going to ever do that, the only way that is out there that will teach you to do that, it is free and you don't need any equipment, is some sort of a simple meditation process. And I, the thing that I teach people about where people fall down in meditation and the concept of meditation is, number one, they think they have to get a quiet mind. So then they begin to judge their skill level 
based on how quiet their mind is, you know, when they're meditating. And I call it, in fact, I, I intentionally didn't call it meditation. I called it thought awareness training because I wanted people to look at it as what you're trying to do is become the noticer of your thoughts. That's what you're trying to learn is to develop the skill of being the noticer of the thoughts. And that has nothing to do with how many thoughts your mind is having. It's not a, that. In other words, as soon as you be, you're learning to become the noticer of your thoughts, you're not trying to stop your thoughts. You're trying to notice when your thoughts aren't obeying, when your brain is not obeying you, when your mind is not obeying you. And that's why I tell people it's got to be a simple thing like you're either going to watch your body breathe. I don't, I don't want any thinking. I don't want you to be counting your breath. I, you know, I don't want you listening to a guided meditation. They have their place. I'm not saying there's something wrong with them. But for what we're trying to accomplish here, I want you to just watch your body breathe or say a very short phrase, something positive. and then. You know, when you're doing that, the only reason you give yourself that one task is you got to give the mind one task so you have a point of relativity. So like if you tell yourself, your mind, I just want you to watch my body breathe, then you notice when it's thinking about the grocery store. You got someplace to point, you know, as a relativity. And then when it leaves and it takes off, which it will, that's when the magic happens. Like people make the mistake of thinking, oh, it's chasing my mind all the time. And well, you you can't notice what your mind is. You can't chase it if you're not noticing what it's doing. So that's a good thing. It's not a sign that you're doing this incorrectly or that you're doing poorly. And when you notice it, that's when all the magic happens. Because when you notice it, that's when you shift from being in the thought to being the noticer of the thought. Because you have to be noticing the thought in order to, to notice what it's that you're not doing, your mind isn't doing what you want. And then when you pull the mind back, you're strengthening your discipline to uh, corral the mind back to where you want. So every time your mind runs off and you catch it, it's like a positive thing. It's like a rep at the gym. It's not a, a sign of weakness on your part. And then to recognize that when you meditate, there are days when, I mean, I've been meditating for 45 years and my mind still, I still sit down and some days, depending on what's going on, and my mind will just be like this turbulent hamster wheel. And that's what my meditation is going to be like that day. You know, the difference is it doesn't bother me. I don't judge it because I realize this is a, my mind is ramped up and this is where it is. There's other times where my mind is very placid. And that's where people, they get confused because sometimes it's placid and they're thinking, oh, I got this. And then the next time it's just out of control. And they're like, oh, you know, I really stink at this. You cannot have a bad meditation. You can't you, you can't fail at it like um, that isn't the case. And then the other thing is to accept the fact we live in a life where we have too much to do and people want closure. They want the shopping done, the kids picked up, the report done, whatever it is. They want to take stuff off of their list. And when you tell them, you don't have to do this the rest of your life. That's just like, oh, my God, you know, like a, that's an f- overwhelming feeling, you know. But then I remind them that, look, you brush your teeth your whole life. You don't brush your teeth until you're 28 and then go, I don't need to do this anymore. We're talking, well, I'm talking about 10 minutes a day, you know, like um, you can come up with 10 minutes a day. Yeah. You will begin to become observer oriented pretty quickly, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe within, you know, within two weeks. And then you'll want to do it more because when I did that with the kids, the high school kids, they were so accustomed to a mind that was running out of control that even though they couldn't stop the mind, they slowed it down. And that feeling was so restful and appealing that uh, most of them went on to sort of meditation practice. And then their parents called me and said, you know, their academics had changed and all this sort of stuff because they were able to resist all this distracting thoughts and focus on whatever they were doing. Like the jazz pianist trying to learn improvisation, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> like you. And I, you know, I, I in the practicing line, as a musician, right. you'll appreciate this. It's something yeah. I'm sure you heard something similar. But my teacher, when I was studying jazz improvisation, he said, you know, in order to be free in the art, you must first be a slave to the process. And that's what practice is. Practice creates freedom because the technical barriers dissolve. And then you're able to express yourself. Your spirit can express whatever ideas you have in improvisation because it doesn't have to wait for your fingers to be able to play it. Like, um, you know, that's the freedom of it. And the other thing I, I always took from him was um, the reason we practice is so that our worst performance is acceptable. And so, again, the reason we practice this meditation on a daily basis is so that when that trigger person comes in and dumps something on us, our response to that is acceptable to us. Like, a, you know, we don't relinquish our control to them. And so we may not get through it by doing everything that we would have liked, but they're not in full control of us anymore. You know, the last thing I want to kind of touch on before we get to the last section is um, this idea. You talked about it when your recent interviews that I think people that are listening may be connected to, but but might not. But there's a real global impact that this type of work can have. There's eight billion people on the planet. But can you imagine if, let's just say 10%, 10% of the population learn how to have emotional freedom or learn how to not be triggered or learn how to manage their, their thoughts and their program? Can you imagine the type of world that we'd be in, what type of leadership that we'd have? Imagine if some of these people were presidents, right, or, or leaders of countries. You're it's, absolutely right. You know, like to carry that a little further, and it's such a great and necessary point. This is what I think is just so fascinating about quantum mechanics and quantum theory, because what that has shown us is that we live in what's called a, a non-local universe. And what does that mean? Well, it, it means that there's not me here in Delaware and you there in New York. We are connected. There's the space between us is is not empty. It's stuff. It's energy and information. We're energy and information. And everything is electromagnetic. So when we think that our heart puts out electromagnetic energy and it goes into this field, which is like we're all in the we're all like droplets of water in the ocean. When we think this goes, that energy goes out into the field and it's um, it's omnipresent because we're all even though we're individualized drops, we're still the ocean. And um, and to your point, this is one of the things that HeartMath is doing. They're having global coherence meetings where they're training people and to have these satellite places all over the world where people will go go into a heart math meditation and to bring peace and to raise the consciousness of the frequency of this matter is is energy and information and it's never static it's always moving and there are frequencies for peace abundance joy and there's frequencies for anger and scarcity we have access to these these things based on the frequency that we're vibrating at. And so this is what your point is, is really important. We need to take responsibility to what we're thinking because just because we're not aware of the impact doesn't mean it's not happening. I mean, that's what I tell people, you know, you're programming, you're thinking into the system all the time and that is creating stuff. Just because you don't believe it or you're not, you're not aware of it doesn't mean it's not creating stuff. Like it still is creating stuff. You know, electricity has been here since the world was created. And it wasn't until about 150 years ago that we discovered it existed. But if you go back a thousand years, it worked the same way. You could have heated your house with it. You could have had lights with it. It was just there waiting to be discovered. 
And now what we have is through this, this physics is um, that has been in the, over the last, say, 75, 80 years, we're beginning to realize that our thoughts are actually things. They're measurable things and they have an impact and you can change your reality. You can change organisms. You can change physical matter, all sorts of stuff. And people need to understand that and take really take a responsibility of what am I putting out into this, you know, into the global field because it is affecting everybody. What am I putting out? It reminds me of this, uh, this sign that somebody gave me once that says, when you enter this space, please be responsible for your own energy. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It's, and it's so true. It's absolutely so true. If you ever read any of Lynn McTaggart stuff, you know, one, like just a simple experiment that they did where they got a group of people in New York and they hooked up with a lab in the Southwest. I think I think it was Arizona. But anyway, they said they what they wanted to do is see if using their mind, they could change the growth rate of these plants. So basically, they had them plant so many plants. Let's I'll just say 10. And they were the control group. And then they had them this 10 uh, seeds, the 10 plant seeds every year that they were going to, through their intention, they were going to think that those plants would grow at a, a rate like three times as fast. And, and they did. I mean, they did. The, the, you know, the plants were like uh, the, the group that they were thinking into, you know, when this group was just poking its head through the soil, these were already three inches high. I mean, there's been thousands of these experiments. But the point is, is that that's what I'm saying. There, There is no, they're not in New York and the, the plants are there. Everything is connected. It's all one energy. And so what you think goes into that energy and then it's present everywhere. And it's always responding to what you're thinking. And it's mirroring back what you're thinking because that's what it does. So again, you can, you know, I, I've told people, look, the truth is the truth, whether you know about it, whether you agree with it, or, you know, whether you believe it, like it's still the truth. And this system, this is what I think is really exciting about this time is because in the West, because we rely on empirical science, these truths have been known in the East for thousands of years, but we don't buy into that because it's always been individual conscious experiment experience. In other words, they they were scientists, but they didn't have tools for themselves, their own minds. So they were always looking internally and trying to figure stuff out. They were not looking for, like in the West, we needed a microscope to prove that bacteria existed. So we had to wait till we invented a microscope before we can confirm that. And so the problem with empirical science, in my mind, is that it always lags behind because it's always limited to whatever the technology is. But now we have this technology where we can see what your thoughts are doing. We can see the energy coming out of your heart. Like we could actually see that. Like, so now we're all comfortable investing in it because, well, yeah, of course it, it, it writes there. You're like, so now we feel comfortable, <laughs> you know, investing in it because we don't feel like somebody's going to make fun of us if we bring it up because it's peer reviewed science. So it's an exciting time from that perspective. You know, when you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, that Shakespeare quote to be or not to be is that is the question. But I was even thinking really what we're talking about here is the question that each person should ask themselves is what type of world are you creating for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And, and for yourself and for the larger, you know, larger you know, in a global sense. All right. Let's uh, let's jump to this last section. First impressions. I'm going to say a word and you tell me one or two words. What's the first thing that comes to mind? All right. It's a game show. <laughs> that, 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 no. <laughs> I hope I don't fail. <laughs> no, there's, there's no, uh, there's no test here. Number one, stress. I want to say something that's useful. Run think, by your thoughts. You think it's too much. <laughs> yeah. 
First thing that comes to mind. Number two, music. Spirituality. Number three, thinking. Who's in control? Number four, thought. Is it mine or not? <laughs> Number five, emotion. Did I make that or did it make me? <laughs> Number six, improvisation. Freedom to create. And the last one, number seven, Thomas Sterner. A work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, I've you the second guest I've had say that. That's, that I, I love that though. That's great. <laughs> all right. Well, Thomas, that is all I have. I know you do, you, you do a lot of uh, this type of work with individuals that work in high stress uh, environments, athletes, uh, CEOs, you know, executives. Tell the people how they can hear more about your work and uh, and get connected to you and also where they can purchase the book, the newest book. Well, well, the newest book is since it was just released less than a month ago, it's probably going to take a little bit of time for it migrates into like airport bookstores. But in terms of like Barnes and Nobles and Amazon and all, all the main places, places people buy books, it's, it's already there and, and in Kindle format. The audio version is not out yet because I have to create that. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and which I will. I mean, I do have a studio in the house, and I've got a lot of experience in that. So, I will create that. As far as getting in touch with me, the easiest way is to just go to my website, tomsterner.com, and they can sign up for. I give people a half hour for free if, um, you know, if they just want to talk back and forth, and we can talk about what I can or can't do for them. And yeah. and then if they want to go forward with that, I just send them a link that they can start scheduling. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I will uh, sign off as I always do. This was a very informative and important conversation. But I always sign off by saying that the truth uh, will set you free if you let it. Mm -hmm.